Hello and Happy New Year from the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., and welcome to the Campus Exchange Podcast. I'm Jeff Pickering, Director of Academic Programs here at AEI, where we connect college and university students with our nation's leading scholars through conferences, seminars, campus events, and this podcast. Today's episode of the Campus Exchange features a conversation between AEI's Alex Brill and Collegiate Network member Ryan Lorowski of the University of Michigan. They talk about single-payer health care and drug costs. Right now, our team is in the middle of recruiting applicants for AEI's annual Summer Honors Program. The 2024 Summer Honors Program will be running from May through July with one-week seminar courses ranging all the different areas of research here at AEI. The application for the 2024 program is open now, and here at the start of the year, you might be thinking about those sweet, sweet, warm months of summer and what you might be doing. Well, our team thinks that you should spend that time in D.C. with us. Summer Honors is a week-long seminar experience, but also a great way for you to get plugged into the life of our think tank. To learn more and to apply, you can visit aei.org shp. That's AEI. And with that, enjoy the conversation between Alex Brill and Ryan Lorowski. Thank you, Jeff. My name is Ryan Lorowski, and I'm a sophomore at the University of Michigan studying economics and history. Today, I am grateful to be speaking with Alex Brill, who is a senior fellow here at AEI that studies federal tax policy, the healthcare and pharmaceutical industry, as well as retirement issues and the effects that these have on the U.S. economy. He has his bachelor's degree in economics as well as a master's degree in mathematical finance. He has testified many times before Congress and has given valuable insight into several topics. Alex, thanks for joining me. Ryan, glad to be here. So we'll start off with question number one. Will a single-payer healthcare system ever be able to exist in the U.S.? And if so, will the government be able to manage it, or will it all be subsidized to private health insurance companies? So a single-payer healthcare system, well, I'll take the second half of that question first. The single-payer healthcare system um, won't, uh, as, as commonly discussed, won't rely on a subset of commercial or private insurers to administer the program, but rather will truly be administered in, in its entirety uh, by the federal government. The sort of blueprint for what that might look like is the federal government's current program uh, where it provides health insurance for senior citizens known as Medicare. And so that this uh, gives rise to the catchphrase Medicare for all, um, the, the term that Senator Warren and Senator Sanders have used to describe um, single-payer health care. The idea of whether or not it's feasible in the United States is a, both a sort of a practical question and, and also a political question. You know, I'm not terrified that um, we are on the brink of having a system like this adopted in the United States. So I think from a political perspective, I think we are not near the the, the moment where this, something like this um, is likely to be seriously considered, although it is certainly being seriously discussed. Um, but in terms of a sort of from an administrative perspective, could the government administer a program like that? There, I think... Uh, in many respects, the answer is yes. Um, and again, it's because they are already operating the Medicare program, which is a huge federal program, uh, one of the largest federal programs, um, providing benefits to tens of millions of seniors. This would simply be to expand that program to, to, all, uh, to all individuals. Awesome. To follow up on that, 
would the federal tax on citizens for health care under um, one of these single-payer uh, systems like Medicare for All be cheaper than purchasing uh, private insurance today, such as through an employer or on the marketplace? So the cost of the program. So there are lots of concerns with a, a, a program such as this, and, and certainly one of them is the is related to the question you're asking about the, the cost of this of a policy like this. The specific cost of Medicare for all would depend on the on the details of the program. In particular, it would depend on how much the government was willing to pay for particular services, healthcare services. So how much would they pay a physician if you went to the doctor because you were sick? How much would they pay for an x-ray if you broke your arm? How much would they pay a surgeon to remove uh, your appendix? So they would have the ability to set those prices, and depending on where they set those prices, that would determine, in large part, the overall cost of the program. So there are different assumptions about how the government might price healthcare services in a Medicare for All program, but it is trillions of dollars per year. So whether it's $2 trillion per year or $3 trillion per year, you know, kind of one could argue about that, but it is one of those two numbers. It is either, you know, it's somewhere between two and $3 trillion per year. To put that number in context, yes, of course, that's an enormously large number. Individual income tax receipts this year will be about Two and a half trillion dollars. So roughly, what we're talking about is a tax increase uh, for individuals. Be roughly doubling the tax burden for individuals. There are for income income tax. There are other taxes we pay. We pay payroll taxes. There are corporate taxes. There are excise taxes. But individual income taxes would need to roughly double in order to 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 finance uh, this cost. Now, your specific question is: Would that be more or less expensive? than the money we're already spending. And again, that this would hinge a lot on the design um, and the generosity of this program. It is difficult for me to imagine that the government would effectively reduce the reimbursement for healthcare services in a large and meaningful way. Because what that another way to say that is every doctor and every nurse in America would get a pay cut. And that seems pretty unpopular and pretty untenable. So you could certainly here or there say, oh, well, you know, we're going to pay less for an x-ray, you know, because this seems silly, you know, or less for this because maybe that's wasteful. You know, of course, the system's not perfect as it's constructed today. Um, and I don't mean to beat up on x-rays, but um, but the notion that you would like significantly wring massive amounts of cost savings out of the system basically requires you to pay every nurse and every doctor in every town, in every city, in every state, significantly less than they're being paid today. And I don't think that's possible. I don't think that's practical or reasonable to, to assume the government would, would effectively do that. So I don't think that there's meaningful amounts of cost savings. Um, there may, on the margin, people argue about efficiencies and paperwork burdens and things like that, but that's a small piece of the total pie. Absolutely. Um, and then lastly, we talked a little bit about Medicare, Medicare for all, um, stuff like that. Um, as part of Medicare, obviously, you need to purchase um, supplemental in, uh, Medicare Part D uh, for prescriptions. And spinning off of that, what role do pharmacy benefit managers play in keeping these drug costs low for Americans today? The pharmacy benefit manager, it's an interesting component of the overall health care system. It's one that most people from 
generally, until quite recently at, uh, at least, have been quite unfamiliar with. And it's a bit of a behind-the-scenes player uh, in the in the uh, drug supply chain. What the pharmacy benefit managers do, and there are a few large PBMs and a number of smaller PBMs, um, they are negotiating drug prices with drug manufacturers on behalf of employers or health insurance plans. And they are designing what's called the formulary. And the formulary is for your prescription drugs. What's true in Medicare Part D, as you as as you mentioned, and it's true for 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 all of us in the prescription drug benefits that we have. Uh, sometimes we go to the pharmacy and we get a generic, and it's ten dollars. Sometimes we go to the pharmacy and we get a brand, and it's fifty dollars. You know, there are different prices that we have to pay because different drugs are on what are called different tiers of the formulary. So what what the PBM is doing is they are negotiating down the price of the prescription of the drugs from the drug manufacturers and simultaneously developing the lists or the formularies that put certain drugs at a lower copay than other drugs. So they're encouraging doctors and patients uh, to utilize lower cost medicines by giving them uh, a way for, not a way, but, but providing them uh, for a lower co- copay or coinsurance. Um, so they're giving them preferential treatment on the formulary. And in exchange, the drug manufacturers are offering larger discounts. We call those discounts rebates in the, in the pharmacy benefit design system. Um, and so that's what the, the PBM is doing, is they are negotiating the discounts uh, between the health insurance plan and the drug manufacturers. They are an entity that are not very popular with the drug manufacturers, um, unsurprisingly, because the job of the PBM is to, is to constrain uh, pharmaceutical prices. And so it's become an issue in Washington this year, it, an issue in the past as well, but, but, most, uh, but more acutely this year. There's been a lot of discussion about PBMs, a lot of discussion about PBM reforms. Um, they've been labeled the the middleman um, by the by by the pharmaceutical industry um, and blamed for uh, by the pharmaceutical industry for the for drug prices being so high. Um, I don't think the evidence supports those accusations. Um, I think that the PBMs uh, do a good job at pressuring the pharmaceutical companies to offer these discounts and and to constrain drug pricing. But it is a is certainly a, a popular topic of late. And now, Alex, the final question, uh, which we ask to all of our guests, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were in college? Oh, so many, so many things, Ryan. I don't know how much time you have. Um, if I have to, if I can only pick one, though, you know, I guess, I guess I would say it's the importance of relationships in, in so many aspects of, of our careers and in so many aspects of Decision making in Washington, public policy making in Washington, and so I think when I uh, was in college, when I came out of college, I was under the impression that that the truth is what mattered, or the evidence, or the facts. If we just knew what the evidence said, if we just had the right, you know, economists study the question with the right data set, we would know the real answer, and then that would be the most important thing. And that is an important thing. Um, and I spend a lot of time trying to to look at the evidence and the research and think about what the uh, what the data tell us about public policy questions. But the thing that I did not appreciate then that I really do appreciate now is that in addition 
to the evidence or the truth, um, as some might call it, is the importance of relationships. And that's everything from, you know, the relationships you have with your coworkers or your boss and those sorts of things. It's, it's important for getting ahead, but it's also a huge part of the public policy development process. And what I mean by that is at the end of the day, the decisions are made by people. You know, they're made by lawmakers or they're made by regulators. And a lot of those decisions rest on on relationships, on trust uh, between individuals. And so um, sort of appreciating the, the psychology of the decision-making process uh, is something that I, I came to appreciate only long after I left college. I probably should have taken a few psych classes um, to, to better understand those things when I was a college student. Those are really important factors in, uh, in our careers and, and ultimately in the understanding how we end up with the policies that we have. Alex, that was an awesome answer. I will definitely take that back with me to Ann Arbor. Thank you so much for your time today. Great. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Our vision for equipping and developing student leaders to renew healthy civic engagement on their campuses is rooted in AEI's history and mission. The American Enterprise Institute was established in 1938 and continues today as a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to defending human dignity expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. The work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society, and a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. If you want to join us in this effort, visit AEI.org or check out the link in our show notes and be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay informed of our events and opportunities for students. See you next time.